Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. Glenn Patrick of the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory near Oxford looks at how particle physics has developed following Rutherford's discovery and what developments we might expect in the future. So, uh, as the introduction said, uh, this month, in fact, May 2011, is the 100th anniversary of one of Rutherford's seminal publications. So, in May 1911... Uh, he produced uh, uh, a world-changing piece of work, uh, interpretation of, of atomic structure. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Rutherford, but then look at particle physics a little bit from a historical perspective and see how things have developed from Rutherford's day right through to the present day. So I'm going to start off just before Rutherford appeared on the scene in Manchester. And the backdrop really... Uh, at that time, in 1897, was all about the electron. And J.J. Thompson, who you can see here, uh, had conducted experiments at the Cavendish Laboratory using cathode ray tubes, the sort of things we have in our TVs, this sort of thing. And he deduced from his experiments that the cathode rays actually were made of streams of particles and that these were much smaller than atoms. What you've got to remember is that around that time, everybody thought the atom was the most fundamental unit, the most basic building block of the universe. But he thought he'd found something smaller, and indeed he had. He also deduced correctly that the electrons are charged particles, they have a negative charge. Uh, and so, okay, he won a Nobel Prize for that. And he went away and uh, actually came up with a model for the atom, which we now know today uh, is incorrect. He proposed something called the Plum Pudding model, which is shown here. Because he'd found the electron, he had that scattered through the atom, loads of them. And to balance that negative charge, there was some sort of cloudy positive charge distributed over the atom. So it was his version of what he thought the atom was. And it's one of those uh, things where truth is stranger than fiction. J.J. Uh, Thompson actually won the 1906 Nobel Prize for demonstrating the electron is a particle, as I've demonstrated here, illustrated here. His son, G.P. Thompson, actually went on to win the 1937 Nobel Prize for showing that the electron is, in fact, a wave. And the difference between those discoveries, of course, is covered by the whole theory of quantum mechanics, that particles can behave like waves and waves can behave like particles. <coughs> um, so... Rutherford is picture here, Ernest Rutherford, who came from New Zealand originally. Uh, he took up a position at the Cavendish Laboratory, uh, worked there for a while. Uh, he went to McGill University in Canada and did a lot of work there on radioactivity, um, which was a, an important issue of the day. And he did eventually end up at Manchester. He was attracted to Manchester because uh, even like today, there was money available. And Arthur Shuster, who was the professor in Manchester, had set up uh, some outstanding laboratories and attracted Rutherford to work in Manchester. And at Manchester, uh, as often happens in these cases, he met up with somebody who was a very important component of his work, his research assistant here. And this is Hans Geiger. Uh, you might have heard of the Geiger counter. This is the person who invented the Geiger counter. And like all good professors, he got Hans Geiger here to do all the work and got his PhD student to do, to do even more of the work. Right? So Rutherford was the grand professor, but uh, 
he, he had these ideas on, uh, on uh, investigating the structure of matter and he built up a team around him. And in those days, they were using alpha particles. Now, alpha particles are basically helium nuclei. This is a helium atom. If you imagine the electrons stripped off, then you have a nucleus of helium. It's got two neutrons in and two protons. So it's positively charged. And he used those uh, to investigate the structure of matter. Now, in those days, it wasn't so easy. You didn't have something like the Large Hadron Collider with all the electronics associated with that. What people were doing at that time were actually looking at uh, radiation, radioactivity, using these sort of devices. And these are sort of eyepieces which you look through and um, the radiation would hit a screen here and it would flash. So you'd actually have to look through these little lenses and count the flashes. And that's the way they did their experiments in those days. Um, at that time, in fact, Rutherford and Geiger thought you know, there must be some better way of doing this and they did come up with what we now know as the Geiger tube. And this is still used today to electronically count uh, radiation. Uh, so that all started around Rutherford's time as well, Geiger working with Rutherford. Geiger went on to improvise this counter and eventually became the Geiger-Muller tube uh, about 15 years later. But uh, it did start off with its initial work. Uh, but they didn't use it for these original experiments um, not entirely clear why. I'm not sure if they trusted it at that stage. And they relied on this standard technique of counting the flashes on a screen. And they eventually produced a groundbreaking paper called On a Diffuse Reflection of the Alpha Particles that was presented to the Royal Society on the 17th of June 1909. So this was the experiment that they got uh, Geiger and Marsden to do. And there was a source of alpha particles. This was radium, a radioactive source and it emitted alpha particles, it hit a thin foil of gold, and then poor old uh, Marsden had to sit counting all the flashes, hitting, he had to rotate himself around this somehow using one of these eyepieces and count all the flashes. And then he had to plot them as a distribution of angle. Okay? Now, um, most of the particles went straight through the, the gold, as you'd expect. If the plum pudding model was correct, all that should happen is these alpha particles should just get scattered a little bit, by a few degrees maybe. But uh, Marsden and Geiger observed that very occasionally about 1 in 10,000 uh, interactions, sometimes the alpha particle bounced right back, almost at angles of 180 degrees. So it'd be very patient, do a lot of legwork in counting all these flashes. And this experiment was published in 1909. Nobody quite understood what all this meant at the time. Um, we sort of now know that what was happening is that the alpha particles were coming in, hitting something in the middle of the atom, which we now call the nucleus, and bouncing back. A lot of the time they were going through thin air, basically, if the electrons are around here. And the alpha particle was too heavy to interact with the electrons, so that, that would have a minimal effect. Uh, and Rutherford said when he saw this, when he was presented with the results, it was as incredible as if you fired a 15-inch shell at a piece of tissue paper and it came back at you. So this was a startling result. Like I say, at the time, nobody quite understood it, but Rutherford went away. And in 1911, this is a thing we're celebrating today, notice the date, May 1911, in this uh, philosophical magazine, 
Professor E. Rutherford, a University of Manchester Fellow of the Royal Society, went away and wrote a paper on what he thought was happening. And he interpreted the observations, see here it says the observations of Geiger and Marsden on the scattering of alpha rays indicate that some of the particles must suffer deflection of more than a right angle at a single encounter. So he interpreted this, and in a sense the rest is history, because this is where we started with Thompson with this plum pudding model. Rutherford, no, that's, that's wrong. He said, we have something like this. It's more like a planetary model. What we've just found in these scattering experiments is the nucleus here, and the electrons spiral around the nucleus. This is roughly correct, but of course, if these electrons were spiraling around, even classically, they would emit radiation. And uh, we wouldn't really have stable matter because the electron would eventually spar into the nucleus. So it, it wasn't a perfect model, but it was pretty close. Uh, I'm not going to talk about electronic structure, except to say, because I could give a whole seminar on that, I'm, I'm no expert on electronic structure. But of course, uh, through the early part of the 20th century, the electronic structure of the atom was investigated more and more. Bohr, Niels Bohr eventually came up with the idea that the electrons could only circulate in fixed orbits, discrete orbits, and that occasionally you'll get a transition between those orbits. And he could predict the structure of hydrogen, uh, the hyperfine structure of hydrogen, but unfortunately this model couldn't explain the structure of other elements. So the variations on this, uh, some people came up with elliptical orbits, Eventually, in 1926, Schrodinger came up with this quantum mechanical description of the electron and came up with the idea that actually the electron really goes around in these sort of fuzzy probability clouds. Again, this got refined by Max Born, and the sort of modern interpretation really is that um, the, the solution of this equation gives you if, you, if you square the solution, it gives you a sort of probability of where the electron is. So you, if you look in chemistry books, you'll see these clouds of uh, probabilities of where the electron is, depending on the configuration of, of, of the chemical element. Um, but Rutherford got the basic idea right um, of the central nucleus. Um, so that was the nucleus. Uh, what was inside the nucleus? Now, unfortunately, the Great War intervened uh, after 1911, and Rutherford uh, diverted his work to the war effort. He worked on uh, anti-submarine warfare, finding submarines. Uh, Geiger and Marsden both went off to the front on opposing sides, because Geiger was German, Marsden was English. They both survived the war and went on to other careers. And it was only in 1919 that Rutherford came back to look at the whole question of atomic structure. And what he did was he did experiments. Here's a picture of his apparatus. And again, he was using alpha particles, and he was firing them into nitrogen gas. One of these pipes is to put nitrogen in here, and the other is to a vacuum pipe. And I think this is the source end. He'd fire alpha particles into there, and it would interact with the nitrogen. And at the end, they do the usual business of counting the flashes to detect what was in there. And to his surprise, he actually found that he got a lot of hydrogen in there. And he deduced then that what he actually produced was protons, because hydrogen is made up of one proton in the nucleus and one electron. So in a sense, it was an indirect uh, discovery of the proton. And it took him a year or two to actually come up with the name proton. You know, by this time, he'd moved to the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. He'd become the director of the Cavendish Laboratory. 
Uh, but he also realized that if the proton was there, from the measurements of atomic mass, he realized that something was missing. And it couldn't be charged. There must be some other neutral particles there. And the various theories at that time uh, about what these neutral particles were. But he got uh, James Chadwick, who'd followed him from Manchester to Cambridge, to do a series of experiments. And again, it's a very similar experiment. This is uh, Chadwick's apparatus. Again, they're filing alpha particles, but this time into beryllium. Now, beryllium, uh, this, this started to produce uh, a strange sort of neutral radiation, which nobody understood at the time. And again, it took a few years before it realized what this uh, neutral radiation was. And it was Chadwick, Chadwick who proposed that it was the neutron. And he showed that the mass was virtually the same as the proton, which Rutherford had already worked out. So it was the proton and the neutron, discovered in a sense indirectly in many ways. Um, and it took a while to really realize that, that that was what the particles that had been discovered. Okay, so we get to this point where Rutherford and contemporaries were actually using radioactive sources for their work. So that limited the energy that they could use to bombard materials with. And uh, they were limited to these alpha particle emitters, which was usually radium. And the only type of nuclear reaction that they were really studying was an alpha particle hitting a nucleus. They had no other way of doing this. Uh, beta particles were known about, but they were, they were not too useful in this, in this regard. Um, so they realized that they needed a device, an accelerator, to accelerate charged particles to higher energies. They weren't going to just rely on radioactive sources. Uh, and pictured here is Rutherford in the middle, looking rather grand. We all dressed so smartly in those days, didn't we? Uh, accompanied by Ernest Walton and John Cockcroft. And these two chaps worked under his supervision to create the first accelerator. Well, the first uh, accelerator that was used really in an experiment. And the basis of all accelerators is to create a large electric field. Because you've got a charged particle, and if you want to accelerate it, you've got a big potential difference to make it move and accelerate. And here's a picture of uh, this accelerator that was built. Uh, it's called the voltage multiplier. Um, and basically, there was a source of protons up here. There's a tube down here, going down, down that pipe. And there was a lithium target here. And the protons would be accelerated, hit the lithium target, and again, I think it's poor old uh, Walton down here, counting the flashes on the screen. Now, it's in the days before health and safety became fashionable, as you can see. I think there's probably a lead plate here just to protect him. But, uh, and they, the way this was done was to um, use this multiplication circuit to actually increase the voltage from, <coughs> from the top here down to here, to, down to the sort of earth level. And by using this equipment, they split the nucleus. You could argue that Rutherford had done this. Maybe, say, Rutherford split the atom. But they split the nucleus uh, in a controlled way, using an accelerator under their own control. Uh, and here's the reaction here. So the protons hit the lithium and release two alpha particles. Now, notice the accelerating voltage. It was about a megavolt. So quite, well, 800 kilovolts here, but of the order of a megavolt. Um, now, this wasn't the only accelerator that was invented at the time. There are a few other ones, but this was the first one that was used for a real purpose, in a sense. 
Uh, okay, I just, just mention energy units. I don't like to put up physics units, but I, keep, I will mention electron volts quite often. And that's because physicists always use the electron volt as a measure of energy. And it's the energy gained by an electron when it's accelerated in an electric field through a potential difference of one volt. Okay? So an electro one electron volt is what you need to ionize hydrogen. Uh, a kilo electron volt is roughly what you get in a medical x-ray. Well, two kilo, kilo electron volts in, a, in an x-ray. Uh, one million electron volts, or an MeV, you can actually get from the decay of uranium. Um, a giga electron volt is getting pretty hefty. That's, uh, you only see in certain accelerators. And a tera electron volt is the sort of energy that you've got in the Large Hadron Collider. So the highest energy is in accelerators. And we also do this annoying thing of measuring masses in the same units. Because Einstein told us that energy and mass are equivalent, we actually use the same <coughs> units to measure electrons. So although an electron mass is 9.1 times 10 to the minus 31 kilograms, you'll never hear a particle physicist talk about that. They'll say it's 0.51 MeV. And the same with the proton mass. It's roughly uh, 1,000 MeV. Okay? They won't say it's 1.7 times 10 to the minus 22 kilograms. Uh, okay, so that's just a slight diversion, just in case you're puzzled by the, the non-nomenclature. Um, and indeed, if you go around the world today, you will see um, Cockroft-Walton accelerators. Um, there's one at Fermilab on the right here. And they tend to be used as pre-injectors. So they're sort of the start of the main accelerator. This does the initial acceleration before they go into a bigger accelerator. And it looks like Frankenstein's would be in here somewhere, doesn't it? This wonderful sort of electrode, you see. And indeed, at the Rutherford uh, Laboratory, until very recently, we were showing school children, as you can see here, uh, around assembly device. It's been replaced by a more modern uh, accelerator. But they're still used around the world. So, you know, it all started with that. And you still see them. Um, it's not the only sort of electrostatic or electrical uh, accelerator, if you like. There are many other ones being invented around that time. It's the Van de Graaff accelerator. Uh, and these, again, look wonderful, don't they? This is built in a an aircraft hangar here. Um, and uh, you'll see over here, they have a bit of a problem. Oh, let's show you how it works first. All right, the way these work is that you spray charge onto a conveyor belt. This isn't quite working at the moment in terms of, uh, I don't think there's a new battery. I might have another one. We can build the LHC, but we can't make batteries last. <laughs> this might last, okay. So you spray charge on here. We'll build the conveyor belt, and uh, there'll be an electrode here which pick up the charge and would spread it over this dome at the top, this dome that you see here. And if you did that enough times, you'd have a large positive charge up here, and this would be an earth potential and create an electric field. <coughs> But there's a problem with these uh, devices is uh, they tend to hit a high voltage limit because of breakdown. You've got this huge charge up here and it's got to go somewhere. Sometimes it will go not where you want it to. Um, you can get around that a little bit by um, 
uh, filling the accelerator with high-pressure gas. That reduces the breakdown. But you eventually hit some sort of limit of 10 megavolts. Okay? So there's a fundamental limit with those accelerators. And these are the sort of things that if you go sometimes in schools, people put their hands on the dome and the hair sticks up. You know? That's basically a Van de Graaff generator. Um, so what's all this about then, this, this quest for higher energies? Well, it's all linked to um, uh, this thing of probing matter. And as you can see here, we've got a wave here that change in, changes in wavelength. And depending on the structure that you're looking at, dictates the size of the wave that you want. So if I was to probe the structure of this room, I could probably fit in a radio wave or a microwave in here and learn something about its structure. If I want to look at smaller things, I have to match the wave to the size of the thing that I look at. So if it's visible light, I can probably probe things down with good eyesight down to a micron. So things like cells. If you want to go deeper and deeper into molecules, atoms and nuclei, you have to squeeze that wave to have a much shorter wavelength. And this is all to do with wave-particle duality in quantum mechanics. And there's an equation up there which is called the de Broglie <laughs> equation here, which says that the the wavelength of the particle is inversely proportional to its energy, basically. It says momentum up there. That the higher the energy of the particle, the shorter the wavelength. That's why everybody wanted these higher and higher energies to probe deeper and deeper into the structure of matter. Uh, so, okay, in terms of accelerators, uh, the Cockroft-Walton was, was invented and used. Uh, a few problems with the Van de Graaff uh, machine, but uh, that did have its applications. Uh, this is the sort of modern version of what we would call a linear accelerator. So at the same time, people were working on this sort of device. And what this basically does is, instead of having one large electric field, it gives the particle a number of smaller kicks. So you don't need these gigantic electric fields all in one go. You can break it up. And as you see here, this is segmented. And the idea is that in these gaps, the particle gets a small kick of energy. So if you look at the bottom here, let's pretend we've got a proton between these two electrodes. Well, it'll be accelerated, won't it? And it'll go through. But now you have a problem because this is negative and this will be attracted, the field's in the wrong direction. So you have to switch the field and accelerate it again. So it's an alternating voltage that goes along this accelerator. And in the gaps, you have to make sure you've got the right sign at the right time to give the particle a boost. And of course, uh, if the particle gets a lot of energy, it relativity comes into play, and these uh, copper tubes have to get longer and longer to compensate. <coughs> and again, uh, you can see over the here uh, a, a modern version. In touch sure which laboratory that is, it might even be my own. Um, <coughs> so this is what we would these days call a linear accelerator, and there are many of these around. Um, the other type of accelerator, which was built along the same idea of giving the particle a small kick, were the circular accelerators. And the first circular accelerator was the cyclotron. And this was invented by Ernest Lawrence and Livin Stanley Livingston at Berkeley in 1930. And you can sort of get an idea of how it works here. What you've actually got now is a magnetic field. And the particle starts in the middle, and as it's accelerated in these gaps, increases its energy, but this is a fixed magnetic field. So the magnet can't control the particle for forever. It eventually waltzes out of the cyclotron. So you get the idea? If it's a fixed magnetic field, 
it can only control the particle in an orbit at a certain energy. Once this energy increases, you would have to increase the magnetic field to contain it. Uh, and again, you'll see many uh, cyclotrons around the world, and you see, uh, certainly you see uh, Lawrence here, uh, standing next to one of his machines. And these things got bigger and bigger. This is a 184-inch cyclotron at Berkeley. I think that refers to the size of the magnet there. And the only limit on a cyclotron, really, is the size of the magnet that you can build. And they get big. Here's the biggest cyclotron in the world. It's still used. It's at Triumph Laboratory in Vancouver. And uh, this is split apart. You can see a man here. And you can see the size of the machine. And there's different things in here, which are not too important. But the, the particles would circulate inside here, and they'd get their kick of energy as they cross, uh, cross, the, cross a gap in the middle. It's more interesting if you actually look underneath this. That was the magnet they had to build. So that's underneath. There'd be a similar pole at the top. And you can see these grand old men who built it uh, all lined up and very proud of what they did. But it weighs 4,000 tons. Okay, so this is on the limit of what you can build magnet-wise. At a field of almost 6 kilogauss and a current of almost 19,000 amps. So these are big things to build. And that limited the cyclotron. Now, you see cyclotrons in hospitals for making radioisotopes and things like that, smaller machines. They're still quite useful, but in terms of reaching these higher and higher energies in particle physics, they sort of had their day. They, they became active for a while, and they disappeared. Uh, and, yeah, so cyclotrons... And, in fact, the modern-day version of that machine, almost every accelerator that you'll see in particle physics is what we now call a synchrotron. And the difference between a synchrotron and a cyclotron is you just had this one magnet. It had a fixed field. In the synchrotron, what you do is you uh, pulse the magnetic field. You ramp up the magnetic field. And this, this is one of the early synchrotrons. It's actually the Bevatron at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory near to San Francisco. And uh, it's a very famous machine. This machine was specially built to discover the antiproton and the antineutron, which it actually did. <coughs> It was in the days when uh, um, there was a lot of excitement about finding antimatter, and they realized they needed a, a much bigger machine to reach the energies required to find antimatter. And this does not have one big magnet. It's made up of a series of magnets going around here. Okay? And what you do, I took a trace of the LHC this morning. This is not that machine, but there's the Large Hadron Collider this morning. And it was actually preparing um, to accelerate beams of particles. And what you see here in blue and red are the intensity of the particles. And what you see here in black is their energy. So you can see that they were injected into the collider at a certain energy, and then they were increased in energy until they reached 3.5 TeV. Right? This is what the energy of the LHC beams are. And in order to do that and control them in the machine, you also have to vary the magnetic field in the machine to keep them in orbit. Okay. Uh, okay, so that's the march of the machines, if you like. Well, what were these machines used for? Well, in the early days, certainly in the 60s and early 70s, there was just a huge number of particles that were produced. And you can see here what Enrico Fermi said. He said, if I could remember the names of all these particles, I would have been a botanist. In fact, you have to be a librarian, I think, because every few years they bring out a book. I think it's every two years. 
like this, which has a list of all the particles in and all the decay modes. And you can get it on the internet these days, but nobody understands all of that, right? And the names of the particles sometimes change, just to confuse you, uh, as we find more and more. Uh, so there's the proliferation of particles. And uh, many of them, of course, are not stable. They decay very quickly. But nonetheless, you can make them. Uh, and a lot of the effort at that time was in understanding why there were so many. We've gone from Rutherford's simple idea to a very complicated idea all of a sudden and lost this uh, search for the sort of fundamental building blocks, we just found more and more particles. Well, luckily, uh, they had patterns. And as you can see, you don't have to understand this, but you can see that if you plot them in a certain way, you get a certain structure. And in fact, there's a famous example down here, because when they were plotted, it meant, oh, we can f fill in some of those we haven't found. And there's a famous particle down here called the omega minus, which was predicted by drawing these sort of diagrams. I said, oh, that should exist. And I went and looked for it, and it did exist. So there was some power in this whole idea that the, these patterns worked. And uh, Murray Gell-Mann, shown here, was one of the principal people involved at that time. This is all based on symmetry arguments, mathematical symmetry. But underneath it is this idea that matter is made up of quarks. The thing that's driving this symmetry is the quark nature of matter. And he came up with the idea that... The proton is not fundamental for a start-off. It's made up of three quarks. There are different sorts of quarks. There's up quarks and down quarks. And they're fractional charge. Unlike the electron, which has a negative integer charge, the proton, that's sorry, the quarks have fractional charge. And so you can build up different charges. So if an up quark is two-thirds, that's four-thirds. And if the down quark is minus a third, that gives you plus one. So you can build a proton. And the same with the neutron. If these have all got the right properties, you can build these things. And an antiproton, you also have antiquarks, have the opposite properties of the quarks. So this was a wonderful idea. It sort of explained a lot of these patterns. But there's no experimental evidence. It's a little bit like Rutherford when he was trying to look for the nucleus. There are lots of ideas about what the atom looked like, but there was no experimental evidence. Luckily, somebody built a very large linear accelerator, two miles long, in fact. This is the Stanford Linear Accelerator uh, um, in between San Francisco and Los Angeles. And it's two miles long, and it accelerates electrons up to an energy of 20 GV. So that's 20 billion electron volts. It's actually built, the San Andreas Fault goes along here somewhere, so it's not the best place to build uh, one of these uh, machines. And tremors have happened and caused a few problems over the years. Uh, the Americans always used to like to say things like it's the world's straightest building. I'm not sure it is, and it's the world's... They used to call it the world's longest building, but there's, there's at least one building that's longer, so it's the world's second longest building. It might even be the third longest building by now. And this device was used to repeat Rutherford's experiment, basically. So what you'd do if you watch this electron up here at the start of the accelerator, you would accelerate it, it would hit a target here, and you detect it. So if I go back, you should get the idea. And here, at the end here, instead of them, that eyepiece that poor old Marsden had to use, you had a spectrometer that looked something like this. And you can see the rails. The, it was moved around at different angles. So again, you could repeat basically Rutherford's experiment, but at much higher energies. 
and lo and behold, um, it revealed some internal structure to the proton. And this was experimental evidence for quarks. So this was about 1969. Now, the way the story is told, if you read the textbooks, sort of tells you this happened, they discovered quarks. Because it wasn't, wasn't quite like that. Nobody actually quite understood the data. Just like Rutherford had to spend two years thinking about it. Um, well, okay, first of all, history has basically repeated itself. So, uh, so we, we've now got down to quarks. We split uh, the atom into the nucleus, and eventually protons and neutrons were found, and there we've got quarks. <coughs> uh, but yes, the story was not as straightforward as you might believe from some of the books. People didn't quite understand the data. Uh, there was some resistance to the quark model at the time, just like nobody quite understood the uh, atomic model in the early days. Somebody, people weren't quite sure if the quark model was correct. Uh, and uh, Richard Feynman, shown here, played uh, quite a big role in interpreting, interpreting the data from, from this experiment. He had a sort of a rival theory called partons. It turns out that quarks and partons are very similar. He just approached it from a different angle. He made no assumptions about charge, fractional charges and things. Uh, and it was complicated by the fact that although there are three quarks in there, it turns out that those are what we call valence quarks. Those are the main quarks in the proton. But you can also get um, these virtual quarks. If you look here, you see them appearing and disappearing. There's these sea of virtual quarks that appear. And that would smear out the data and make it even more difficult to interpret. And there are also experiments done with neutrinos in those days of scattering neutrinos off, off nuclei. And it took a while to actually accept the quark model. But eventually it was accepted, and it's an accepted model today. Uh, and this structure of the proton uh, is still under investigation in many ways. I mean... Although you might say, well, it's got three quarks and it's got these, this funny sea of quarks, you know, what energy did they carry? And how do they react inside the, inside the proton? How do they interact inside the proton? And until recently, there was a machine, uh, this is called HERA, at uh, Hamburg, and that ran until 2007. And this, again, is a similar experiment to what Rutherford did. Uh, it's got uh, two rings there. Uh, you can see uh, a proton ring here and an electron ring here. And this was used to smash electrons into protons, but in a colliding mode. And that was carried on looking at the structure of the proton and all the distributions and how, how the, how the pro get a good physical description of the proton. Right, so um, in terms of what I've described so far, except for that last example there, most of the experiments were done what were using what we would call fixed targets. Rutherford had a fixed target of gold. And most particle physics experiments in the 60s and 70s and early 80s were done by smashing a beam to a fixed target. And you can see that this was quite a technology because the target was usually liquid hydrogen. So you had to build these very special targets. And there's a lot of uh, engineering associated with that. Uh, but there's a disadvantage with fixed targets. It's a bit like if you crash your car. If you crash into a stationary car, well, you might be in trouble. But it's even worse if you crash into a car coming the other direction, isn't it? And it's the same idea in colliding beam machines. The amount of energy that's available is that much more. So in fixed target, you don't have to worry about the formula, but there is a formula. Uh, you, you, you can calculate the amount of energy available. In a colliding beam machine, it's just twice the beam energy. 
Now, as you see in the example here, it matters. If you're colliding a, a beam of 100 GeV into an atomic electron, you only get this amount of energy, quite a small amount of energy. But if you collide it head-on, you get twice the beam energy. So lots more energy available, uh, lots more useful energy available. So uh, there was then uh, the first person to think about this was, I think it was on there, yes. Uh, Rolf Widero from Norway was the first person who came up with the idea uh, of colliding two beams. And he was also very active inventing the linear, the linear accelerator in the early days. Uh, but it was this guy who actually applied the idea and built the first colliding beam machine. And this is it. Uh, by modern standards, it's small. You can see it's actually raised on a platform because somehow the um, particles had to be injected. And this was an electron-positron collider uh, that was built in Frascati in Italy in early in the 1960s. Uh, it had a few problems because they found they couldn't easily inject the particles into there. So they actually had to move it to France to another machine at Orsay because they had a better injector. So they had to move the whole thing uh, from one country to another. But it did eventually observe colliding beam interactions in 1964. So this is the prototype for a whole series of colliding beam machines. It was the very first one. Uh, and it still exists. I sort of put it at the laboratory as an exhibition piece, so you can actually still see it. Um, and this, this prototype spawned a whole series of uh, electron-positron colliders. And one very famous one was called SPEAR. It was actually at the end of that two-mile linear accelerator, and it was built in a parking lot. And they built it in about 20 months. This was a sort of American gung-ho attitude. Uh, Nobel Prize to be grabbed, and they built this in 20 months, and they discovered two Nobel Prizes. A uh, very famous machine. It discovered the JSI particle, which actually indicated there was another quark, something called the charm quark, another type of quark, which nobody knew existed until then. There were theories predicting it, again. And then discovered what's called the tau lepton, which is basically a heavier version of the electron. Uh, so the largest colliding beam machine, electron-positron collider, was, the, was the, the LEP machine at CERN in Geneva. And you can see um, the size of that, 27 kilometers in circumference. Here's Lake Geneva, here's Geneva Airport. And here's uh, a synchrotron that injects into it. And, uh, it. and it's 100 meters underground, and it looks something like that. And that performed some very important careful measurements uh, from 1989 to 2000. And one of the things it helped us understand a little bit was a bit more about this model we have in particle physics. We call it the standard model. Uh, and this basically is a table of all the fundamental particles, at least all the ones we, we think we know about at the moment. So you've got your quarks, and you've got the electron at the bottom here in the first column. And then, so for some reason, it repeats. You get another set of quarks, and you get a heavier version of the electron called a muon. And then the third column gives you something called the tear. So you've got these three generations. And the first column is all that you find in normal matter. So in this desk here, it'll be made up of up quarks, down quarks, and electrons. You can only make the other ones in accelerators. But why they exist is still a mystery. 
Nobody really knows what are the three generations. And also it begs the question is, are those quarks and leptons really fundamental? Are, are they composite particles? Are they fundamental particles? And one thing the LEP machine did, it made some measurements. This is, you don't have to understand the details of this, but uh, they measured a particle called the Z0 particle and watched it decay. And they measured its decay width. And its decay width was relate, can be related to the number of neutrinos that exist. That's these things here, these are neutrinos. Uh, and you can see the, the red things here are the data points. And you can see the curve that goes through is the theory which says there's three neutrinos. So it's sort of telling you again that there's these three generations. It didn't tell you there were four, it didn't tell you there were two, it told us there were three. The measurement was something like 2.996 plus or minus an error, uh, as you'd expect. Um, so, um, so I've covered electron-positron colliders, and LEP was the uh, largest machine that's been built to date. Uh, of course, you can collide other particles. And hadron colliders are in the news, because the LHC is a hadron collider. Um, now, I like the quote at the top there from Einstein. He, when he'd heard of Rutherford's work, he said, splitting the atom by bombardment is something like shooting sparrows in the dark in a place where there are only a few birds. And of course, it is very difficult to do this. Fixed target experiments are difficult. But colliding beams is even more difficult. Uh, as an example, here is the LHC. And you can see the two beams interacting. And remember, those beams go around an accelerator 27 kilometers in size. And they have to be squeezed. And when they're collided, there's 100 billion protons squeezed to just 16 microns. So it's thinner than one of my very few hairs. Um, <coughs> and trying to make those interact is a huge technology in itself. And one of the things you hear physicists talk about is luminosity. All that means is if you squeeze the beams so that they're really intense. Because the more intense they are, the more interactions you get. If they're all dispersed, they just miss one another. The more intense they are, the more basic interactions you can get. Uh, and the very, again, just like I showed you the very first electron collider, this is the first proton collider. And this is a historic machine. Uh, it was built, started operation in 1971. And there are two beams of protons uh, going around two separate rings in this machine, slightly different. Uh, you can see there's two rings. And they would collide here. And at certain points, there'd be experiments around there. And this was the world's very first Hadron Collider. Uh, it was a very important prototype again, because from this developed greater things. Uh, and it was a necessary technical step to build those other machines. Uh, for instance, the LEP machine and the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, there were some technical developments. Stochastic cooling was invented. That's just a means of cooling the beams so that they have this very, they, you can make the beams as small as possible. In terms of physics, it made no major discoveries. In fact, it missed out on some Nobel Prizes. The JSI and Upson particles were discovered elsewhere in that parking lot in, uh, in, in Slack. This machine did have the capability, but uh, it wasn't exploited uh, to do that. So that was the first uh, machine. Um, at CERN, somebody came up with the bright idea of converting one of their existing synchrotrons into a collider. And that person was Carlo Rubia, shown up there, uh, Italian. And he was joined by an accelerator uh, physicist, Simon Vandermeer, shown at the bottom there. 
And what they did was convert the synchrotron, instead of being a synchrotron that just accelerated photons, into a colliding beam machine. So that it actually uh, accelerated protons in one direction and antiprotons in the other direction and collided them. Okay? And of course, antiprotons are the antimatter equivalent of proton. They have, a different ch they have the opposite charge, so they go around the other direction in the accelerator. And uh, Van der Meer exploited this cooling technique that he'd invented on the ISR. And as they say, the rest is history because they made two very important discoveries, which is the reason Rubia was building the, this machine. They discovered the W boson, and I'll tell you what that is in a minute, in 1982. And this is the experiment that they used. This is the UA1 experiment. About a year later, they discovered the Z boson. You notice this is slightly heavier, which is why it took a bit longer. <coughs> and those are two very famous pictures. They're the first events of the W and the Z boson that was discovered. Why was this important? Well, it meant that beta decay was finally understood. Rutherford had been playing around with radioactivity in the early part of the 20th century. In fact, he got his Nobel Prize for, uh, in chemistry, as it turns out, not physics, into the disintegration of the elements and the chemistry of radioactive substances. So he came up with the idea that it was alpha, beta, gamma radiation. But he didn't necessarily understand it too well. And it was only after these particles were discovered that beta decay was really understood. And that's because these W and Z particles are the particles that are the carriers of the, what's called the weak force. And the weak force is responsible for radioactivity. So if you see up there, you can see um, um, a neutron. This is beta decay. A neutron decays into a proton and spits off an electron and a neutrino. You can forget the neutrino. And that's what happens in radioactive sources if they beta decay. But what's really happening at the quark level is that one of the quarks is changing from a D quark to a U quark. It's changing its flavor. And as it does so, it emits the W boson, and then you get the electron. So this is all to do with um, quantum forces. All forces known in nature have a quantum carrier, a quantum force carrier particle. And in the case of the weak force, it's the W and Z shown in here. So again, uh, this is beta decay. Okay, so you've got the quark changing into a D quark by means of this W uh, force particle. Uh, and in fact, Eddington sort of says it all, really, because he said if we eliminated all the unfold space in a man's body and collected his protons and electrons into one mass, the man would be reduced to a speck just visible with a magnifying glass. So although we've got all these protons, quarks, and electrons in our bodies, the thing that holds it all together and makes sure it's uh, got structure are these force particles. And again, uh, you can see on here, this is again a different version of the standard model. You see the quarks. These are the matter particles. These are things that make up matter, as do the leptons, the electron, muon, and tau lepton. These are just variations of the electron. These are just different sorts of quark. But there's a class over here, a very important class of particles, which are responsible for the fundamental forces. And the fundamental forces are electromagnetism, which we all sort of know, it's how that computer works. The weak interaction, responsible for radioactivity. The strong interaction, which is responsible for binding things together in the nucleus, binding those quarks together. And gravity, which of course we all sort of think we understand at some level. <coughs> um, so, okay, so um, that collider 
back here somewhere, yeah, uh, was, was the machine, the tool that was used to discover those particles, those force particles. And if we move past that, uh, until very recently, this is another colliding beam machine. It also collides protons and antiprotons. This is the Tevatron at Fermilab into, in, near Chicago. And that's been running since 1983. It's called a Tevatron because, well, they don't quite make it, do they? 0.98 TV. It's two times one TV, roughly, the beams. <coughs> Full mass circumference. Um, again, you see a number of machines there. There's probably a linear accelerator that feeds this injection machine. And then this is the main colliding beam machine. And that will run until the end, roughly the end of this year, and then it will shut down because uh, the LHC is essentially taken over. Uh, so there's been some competition between this machine and, and the LHC until recently. Uh, and this was the machine that was used to discover what's called the top quark in 1994, I think it was. And that was the last quark to be discovered. So you have the UD, uh, <coughs> strange charm, bottom and top. So it was the final quark in that structure that I showed you earlier to be found. And that was only 1994, where it was experimentally shown to exist. <coughs> uh, okay, so in terms of... Uh, I, I mentioned hadron colliders. Now, a hadron is just something that contains quarks. So it can be a proton, but that could also be atoms. And this beast here is the relativistic heavy ion collider, Rick, at Brookhaven near to New York. And again, you can see there's a whole complex of machines. And this is used to uh, collide all sorts of particles, including gold atoms. And remember, Rutherford started off whacking things into gold. This smashes gold atoms together. You can see two tubes there, which are two superconducting rings. So it's built slightly differently. It's two se completely separate rings. 2.4 marker circumference. And when you smash uh, things together, you need to look at them. This is one of the experiments. This is the star experiment. And this is what it looks like when you smash gold together. Atoms of gold uh, at 200 GeV. Remember, giga electron volts, billion electron volts. And uh, actually, if you read New Scientist or something very recently, they made a discovery, apparently. They discovered the heaviest antimatter to date. And this is anti-helium. Uh, and in fact, again, Rutherford... Uh, now, he, helium, of course, is equivalent of... The nucleus is equivalent to an alpha particle, which is what Rutherford started off using. So it's sort of... Uh, it's sort of uh, good that they've discovered something almost on the anniversary that's related to alpha particles. But they discovered anti-helium-4. They've discovered all sorts of antimatter, but it's the heaviest version of antimatter that's been discovered so far. Uh, so, in terms of accelerators, um, what I've shown there is a sort of growth in accelerators, something called a Livingston chart, which shows uh, on the bottom axis uh, time and on the vertical axis uh, energy. And you can see how the energy has increased over the years as we try to probe deeper and deeper into matter, which is shown here. Okay? So, people started off looking at atoms and the nucleus and discovering protons and eventually discovering different types of quark and different types of electrons. And as the energy has increased, we've gone deeper and deeper. Look how the length scale has changed, got smaller and smaller, which is the whole nature of particle physics. Um, large Hadron Collider, I must mention that. 
So that started operation in 2009. Uh, this eventually will collide protons with protons uh, at 7 TV, tera electron volts. Uh, tera means 10 to the 12. That's uh, built in the same, uh, using the same infrastructure as the LEP collider. So it actually used the same tunnel, this 27-kilometer tunnel in Geneva. The old machine was ripped out and the LHC was put in its place. Uh, this is superconducting, so it's all cooled down to about minus 271 degrees. So that's uh, 8,000 cryomagnets. Uh, and although it's got the cost there, it works out roughly a pint of beer for everybody in Europe. So it's not so expensive if you think about it that way. But uh, People always ask the cost, that's the problem. So. Um, and that will, uh, I, I mean, and look at the specifications at the top. The crossing rate is 40 megahertz. Uh, so you get at full pair something like 800 million proton-proton collisions every second. And the velocity of the proton, if you calculate it correctly, is within a whisker of the speed of light. So a beast of a machine. It's already established a few world records. Uh, at the end of 2009, it's got the record for the energy of accelerating a proton beam. If you remember, the Tevatron was just short of a TV. So the LHC got 1.18 TV, a new record. It managed to collide them, so it got the collision record. Uh, it's actually performed collisions at 7 TV uh, in March 2010. And only on the 21st of April of this year, uh, it got a luminosity record. Remember, this thing of beam intensity. So the LHC has already got the record for luminosity in a Hadron Collider. It's beat the Tevatron. Which, if you consider the problems that it encountered when it started up, it's starting to do rather well now. Uh, this is what a collision looks like if you smash protons together at 7 TeV. Um, what you've got to remember is that here you're smashing protons together. And protons are messy objects. They've got quarks inside. And they've got this sea of virtual quarks. So the collisions are not as clean as when you collide electrons. Because electrons are fundamental particles. But that's a collision from the CMS experiment. And what you're really looking for are the hard interactions. They're when the quarks hit one another. Or when these gluons hit one another. The gluons are the things that keep the quarks together. They're another force particle. Another way to think about it is that you're basically producing a lot of energy, and if you produce enough energy, you produce new particles, new sorts of particles. And one of those particles that uh, you'll see in the newspaper is called the Higgs boson. Uh, now, one of the problems with all those fundamental particles I showed you uh, in the standard model, they all have different masses. The electron's very light, the W boson and the Z boson are very heavy. Well, why? They're fundamental particles. How do they acquire this mass? And nobody really understands this, but there's a mechanism where you can generate mass. And it's the idea that you've got a field, something called the Higgs field, which is this sort of blurry thing. And the particle interacts with that field. And by that interaction, it generates its mass. So it's a bit like an electromagnetic field. Somehow you're interacting with the field or a gravitational field to generate the mass. And this is one of the things that the LHC is searching for, this Higgs field. And the boson is just the quantum of that field. It's the quantum particle. So we'll find it in some sort of decay. We'll create the Higgs boson, and it will decay. And that will be the quantum particle that you found responsible for that field. Uh, just to put things into context, this quark shows you the quark masses. These are sort of calculated. They're very difficult to know exactly. 
because um, they're calculated from the data and there's, there's a spread on the, on the measurements. Um, but you can see there that the up quark and the down quark are quite light and that's what make up protons. But the top quark is a whacking 172 GeV. Now a single proton weighs about 1 GeV. So this is 172 times the mass of the proton. And yet it's supposed to be, if we believe the theory, a fundamental particle. You can't break it up. And in fact, an atom of silver has an atomic weight of only 108. So this is like 108 protons, if you like. So it's heavier, the top quark is heavier than an atom of silver. We sort of take some believing if it really is a fundamental particle. And that's a bit about what the Higgs field is all about. How do these particles have such different masses? And why is that one in particular so heavy? <coughs> uh, another uh, thing that the LHC hopes to find, what are called supersymmetric particles. Now, supersymmetry basically says there's a whole family of particles we've not yet discovered. On, on this slide, they call, they call them shadow particles. And supersymmetry is a theory that uh, has um, a lot of good aspects about it because it's certainly used in, it's, it's a requisite for string theory. Uh, it ha will help to explain things like gravity. And, uh, but one of the problems is finding all these extra particles. And it might explain dark matter because the, one of the supersymmetric particles, these things eventually decay but they should be sort of swarming through the universe. And they might be, if you can find these supersymmetric super particles, they might be uh, partially responsible for dark matter. So the basic idea, of course, is that keeps me in a job, or somebody in a job, uh, because these are the normal elementary particles, and there's a whole new family of supersymmetric particles which are waiting to be discovered. They've not been discovered so far, it's because we haven't had the energy in the accelerators, and the LHC might just have that energy. And again, a bit like in Rutherford's day, where there were various theories which were pointing to certain things, there is, a, there is something that also points you to supersymmetry. And that is this idea that all the forces that we know, the strong force, the electromagnetic force, the weak force, and gravity, were all basically one force. At the time of the Big Bang, these were all one force. But as the universe has cooled, they've sort of frozen out into different forces. And in fact, over the years in particle physics, we found uh, that, for instance, electricity and magnetism are basically the same force. So we talk about electromagnetic force. We've actually found over the years also that the electromagnetic force and the weak force can be combined into something called the electroweak force. So there's strong evidence for this idea that all the forces can be unified. The problem is the energy. A lot of the theories say that you can only do this at, it's called the Planck scale. So this is sort of the big bang energies, if you like. <coughs> what, does, what has supersymmetry got to do with this? Well, if you look there, you'll see what the standard theory predicts. It predicts that these things will never quite uh, be unified. These are the strengths of the different forces plotted as a function of some scale here. And it shows that they don't interact. Sorry, they don't intersect. If you add in supersymmetry, you get this unification, which is what everybody thinks should exist. So supersymmetry has some theoretical things that drive it along. 
but we still experimentally never found a supersymmetric particle. So maybe those are waiting to be discovered. Okay, unfortunately, when I wrote the title, I put strings in the title. And when I was finishing off this talk last night, I thought, ah, oh, I have to write something about strings. Uh, and thought, what can I say in terms of Rutherford? Well, probably not a lot, except, of course, Rutherford started off by looking at the fundamental building blocks of matter. That was what he wanted to do. That's what he did in his day. And that tradition is still being carried on. So if you say we've got quarks and electrons, what are they made up of? At the moment, we say they're fundamental, but maybe they're made up of something else. Now, there is a theory, string theory, which says that you shouldn't think of particles. You should think of these sort of string-like objects. Uh, and when you vibrate these strings, depending on the way they vibrate, that's equivalent to a particle at the quantum level. So that's the basic idea of string theory. Now, the problem with string theory is it works in up to 11 dimensions. So if you subtract time, that's an extra six spatial dimensions. So that's the first problem. I can't think in three dimensions, that alone 11 dimensions. It has the benefits that incorporates gravity. It reconciles general relativity, Einstein's theory, with quantum field theory. Relativity is not a quantum theory, which is why it's never, we don't have a quantum field theory of gravity. So that's why we have problems with, with the standard model with gravity. We, we just ignore it for the time being. Uh, but these extraspatial dimensions could be as small as 10 to the thir minus 35 metres, infinitesimally small. Now, I told you earlier on about this de Broglie wavelength. If you calculate the uh, wavelength of a 1 TeV particle, typically what you've got in the uh, LHC, that's a de Broglie wavelength of about 10 to the minus 19 meters. So there's no way you can use that to study that. This idea of matching the wavelength of your probing radiation to the thing you're looking at. It's far too big. So there's no chance to do that with existing accelerators, including the LHC. And probably will never be any chance to get down to those sort of dimensions. But there is some hope. Uh, and it might be clutching at straws. Uh, it's possible that these extra dimensions could be large. And by large, I don't mean you know, miles or anything. They could be of the order of a millimetre. And this is all connected with what's called the hierarchy problem of why is gravity of all the forces so weak? it's a huge number of times weaker than even what we call the weak force. Now, why is that? Why is there this sort of hierarchy of forces and that gravity is so much the weakest? And one of the suggestions is that maybe it's because gravity is one of the forces that can leak into another dimension. But these other dimensions exist. And the reason we see gravity as being so weak is because we've seen a diluted version of it in our three-dimensional world. The rest of gravity is in another dimension, and that's why it's weak. It's just a theory. Uh, now it turns out experimentally that gravity, although it's been explored over large distances between planets and uh, solar systems and the like, it's not been explored over small distances. And I think only down to about a millimeter of measurements, accurate measurements, been made on the force of gravity. So the bottom line is people don't really know how gravity behaves at very small distances. And it's possible that gravity could have a different behavior at these small distances than what we know and understand over large distances. 
So gravity could be stronger in these small distances and in these small extra, well, what are called large extra dimensions here. And if that's the case, you can create these mini black holes. So again, that's something that the LHC has got, occasionally makes the newspaper the end of the world sort of syndrome where we're all going to be swallowed up in a black hole. But it's all related to this thing of gravity, dimensions, and the fact that if gravity is different, then maybe it'll be strong enough to create these mini black holes. So these will be like particles that will just evaporate. They won't gobble us all up. So there is some hope that maybe the LHC could give some indication of extra dimensions. But, I mean, it depends on this theory being correct. Uh, and if we go back, I mean, these are sort of things that the LHC will hopefully find. Things like supersymmetric particles and the Higgs particle. This is a little bit more science fiction when you get into the realm of extra dimensions. But it's not ruled out. But since I had to mention strings because <laughs> I put it in the title, this is my take on string theory and trying to understand it experimentally. Of course, there are many theories, there are many people who support this theory because it has all wonderful theoretical um, uh, delights associated with it, but experimentally, are we ever going to discover it? Um, okay, so in terms of the LHC, what comes after the LHC then? Okay, I've already said it won't find strings unless there's some... Uh, crazy extra dimensions. Well, you could build a machine beyond the LHC, but in a sense, even synchrotrons have started to reach their limit. And one of the reasons they reach their limit is that, as Rutherford found out in his planetary model of the atom, if you circulate an electron around in a circle, it radiates energy away. And in synchrotrons, this happens. It was found by accident when they built one of the first synchrotrons that you got this thing called synchrotron radiation. And that's shown here. An electron going around in an orbit will give off what are basically X-rays. And it's a very strong function of the energy. See, it goes to the power to the four here. So the more energy you put into the machine, the worse this problem is. And it's a function of the particle. So electrons are particularly bad. Bending electrons is not a good idea. Bending protons is not so bad. And the tighter you bend uh, the particle the worse it is as well. Now, in some places, this is exploited. This is the diamond light source at, uh, my, at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory, where I work. And that produces, on purpose, the synchrotron radiation. It circulates the electrons and wiggles them around and produces these X-rays. Why does it do that? Well, it turns out that X-rays are good for looking at things at the molecular and atomic level. It's no good for particle physics. It's a, it's a pain. It's a nuisance, this synchrotron radiation. But in terms of studying things at the molecular level, it's got just the right wavelength. Remember this thing about the de Broglie wavelength to study things at the atomic molecular level. Uh, and that limits the size of a synchrotron. Uh, unless you can build bigger and bigger, more powerful magnets to keep that radius constrained, you hit this. This is one of the fundamental limits of a synchrotron, dealing with the synchrotron radiation. Uh, so in terms of the LHC, what is planned is to actually to increase its intensity uh, the plan to upgrade the LHC, but it's not to upgrade its energy, it's to upgrade its intensity. And the reason is you get more and more interactions and you can find more and more rarer particles. And it's not so much the LHC itself that gets increased, it's all the associated accelerator complex. So some of these old machines, this PS machine has been there since the 50s, will get replaced by a new PS2 machine. 
and that's to increase the luminosity by a factor of 10. So that's what's on the cards for the LHC. That won't happen until... Uh, well, experiments won't make use of this until around 2020, maybe 2018, but from there onwards. But beyond the LHC, what people are looking at is a linear machine again. Because of this problem with synchrotron radiation, the idea is to build a very large linear collider, 31 kilometers long, and to um, collide electrons and positrons. Why electrons and positrons? Because those are fundamental as far as we can tell. Uh, Thompson, when he found it back in 1897, we still think they're fundamental. So the collisions are nice and clean. When you smash protons together, you get these very complicated collisions because of the structure of the proton. When you smash electrons together, you get very clean. So you can do very precise tests. So if the LHC, for instance, finds the Higgs boson, that's great, it's discovered it. But you need to understand the properties of the Higgs boson. And this is the sort of machine which will look at the properties in, in much better precision. Uh, one of the problems is you'd really like to make this as short as possible. So this whole problem of voltage comes in again. And to make the machine as short as possible, you need to have an accelerating gradient of about 31 megavolts a meter. Okay? So it's quite a challenge. And uh, technically, you have to build these superconducting cavities which do the acceleration to do that. So that's supposed to be the machine after the LHC. It's a global international effort to build it. No one country can do this. It's not clear where it will be built. It could be built in Japan. It could be built in America, Germany. Who knows? So uh, there's a design study trying to build this, and people involved in doing this. Obviously, it has to find funding to do that. And to some extent, it depends on what's found at the LHC. What would be wonderful if we could find some of the LHC so we can then say, yes, this is the right machine. So to some extent, it's good that it's sort of delayed for some time uh, because then it can be optimised to to work in the right region. Uh, one thing I should mention is, of course, I've only talked about terrestrial accelerators today. There's the great accelerator in the sky. Uh, there are cosmic rays bombarding us from, from the cosmos, uh, from outer space. Uh, those have much higher energies than you can create in an accelerator. Just there's, they're difficult to control, they're difficult to identify. Uh, there's not so many of them at the high energies. Uh, but people are looking, and I think Rutherford might have been impressed. The very last um, journey of the Endeavour space shuttle took off on Monday. And on that very large last mission, it carried a particle physics experiment called the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. And the idea is that this spectrometer, it's like a particle physics experiment that you'd see at any accelerator, is put into space and it studies these cosmic interactions coming from cosmic rays. So what will happen, I think, on either tomorrow or Friday, the astronauts will pluck this device out of the cargo bay on the space shuttle and put it on the space station over there. <coughs> and it will sit there. Uh, it's all controlled remotely from CERN. It will sit there, and cosmic rays will come in and interact. And one of the things that this is looking for is primordial antimatter. So although we can create antimatter in the laboratory relatively easily, nobody can find antimatter anywhere in the universe. So there's a mystery where, well, did it ever exist? And if it did exist, where, where, where has it all gone? So what, one of the things this will look for is primordial anti-alpha particles. So remember, Rutherford started off using alpha particles. This is going to look for 
anti-alpha particles in the cosmos, if they exist, and other particles as well. Uh, so in, in the last slide, uh, I think it was Isaac Newton who said this, that if I've seen further, it's by standing on the shoulder of giants. Uh, I think there was actually a riposte to Robert Hooke, who was his deadly enemy, so all he was saying was, I can see further than you. Uh, uh, but Robert Hooke was a very celebrated scientist in his own right. Uh, but I think it's true that um, Rutherford has started off a whole field of physics, particle physics, and I've tried to trace that legacy today. And in fact, if you look here, there's not all the people who won Nobel Prizes in physics connected with particle physics, but it's most of them, experimental and theory. So Rutherford has had a profound influence on... Um, many experiments, many theories, because he started it all off back in 1911. And that's the end of my talk. Thank you very much.